uh, Mark, we're going to be in chapter 1, the first uh, eight verses. Today we're starting uh, in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be looking briefly at uh, Mark 1, 1 through 8 in a few minutes. Uh, But first I want to do just a quick introduction. When you open the other Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, all begin with a formal opening of some kind, a prologue, a genealogy, the story of the birth of Jesus. Not so with the book of Mark. He begins in a straightforward manner, which we are going to see is his style. This was the first account compiled about the ministry of Jesus, and it was written down as a um, story which was told to Mark by a familiar person to us, the apostle Peter. So this is Peter's story transcribed by a fellow co-worker of the gospel. And some of the pictures that Mark paints are very rich and vivid, as though Peter can still see how green the grass was or how many pigs there were in the story. There is detail here that comes from firsthand knowledge. This book was written between 40 and 60 AD, most probably for the Church of Rome. Although not stated in plain terms, very early church tradition says that the author was John Mark, who was a close associate of Peter's and a cousin to Barnabas. He grew up among the leaders of the early church as his mother Mary opened her home as a gathering place for the ministry. Mark was with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And although he left halfway through and it caused a rift in relationships for a time, at the end of his life, Paul commends Mark for being a useful servant of the ministry and asks him to come and visit. So here are some key elements of Mark that I just think is helpful for all of us to be reminded of. Uh, The theme of the book is Jesus's role as a servant. Jesus's death on the cross is present throughout the whole book. It is a book of action. The word immediately or straight away is used over 40 times. Jesus is always on the move, focusing in on his acts rather than teaching. Most of this action is meant to show us how Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to die. It is written in the most common form of Greek, called Koine. He also uses more Aramaic words than other writers. It is the shortest of all of the Gospels. Matthew and and Luke borrow heavily from Mark. There are only like 24 verses that are unique to the Gospel of Mark alone. This Gospel is directed at Christians who are facing opposition to their faith as a practical encouragement for them. Mark portrays Jesus as the Son of God and the Son of Man, who is able to deal with everything he encounters in this life. Those who come to Jesus are healed taught and helped. Jesus overcomes death, making the cross now a symbol of hope, not of shame. If you want to go uh, to have further detail, I encourage you to listen to Pastor TJ's great teaching that he did this week at Encounter, where he goes into more detail about the book of Mark, and you can find that on the website. So now hear the word of the Lord from Mark 1, 1 through 8. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Oh, Father, may your word come alive to us in a new way today by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, God. We know that we are not alone here, that you are with us. And so, God, may you be glorified and honored in our study today. Amen. For those of us who love funny, upbeat, life-affirming movies, few are as iconic as Forrest Gump. Right? Not only was this film a box office hit in the summer of 1994, but in the following year, it was nominated for a near-record 12 Academy Awards and eventually won six It was a special night at the Oscars that year because Tom Hanks became the second man to earn back-to-back Best Actor awards after winning the previous year. In his emotional thank you, he praised his director, Robert Zemeckis, his cast and crew, executives at the studio, and most of all, his wife. Oh, we love that. When Zemeckis himself won the award for Best Director, he thanked Steven Spielberg, who gave him the award, the cast and the crew, his assistants, the studio, his family, and finally, everyone who went to the movies to see his movie. Other award winners came to the podium being lauded for their work, but at the end of the night, some reporters noticed that nobody thanked this guy. You know who that is? It's Winston Groom. That's right. The author of the book, Forrest Gump on which the movie was based. I know. He said he understood. He said his experience of growing up in the South, his love for stories, and going to fight in Vietnam gave him the impetus to write this novel. Now, in retrospect, many have commented that the Oscars are a night to celebrate movies right? The directing was stellar, the visual effects and the editing, and the fictional put the fictional character into historic situations. And for many of us, we can't even think about Forrest Gump without thinking about Tom Hanks. But we have to remember that we would never have had the joy of watching this movie if this author hadn't brought it to life. As moviegoers and people who work on the film, we focus so much on the story and on the characters and what it evokes in us or how we relate to it, that we often forget the person who had the idea in the first place. Winston Groom, because of his experience and creativity, brought to the world the character of Forrest Gump. Now, I was thinking about this because in the first eight verses, Mark brought up this for me, as I realized that the subject this morning for me and us is not about Mark. And it's not about John the Baptist, and it's not even about Jesus. 
It's really about God the Father, because he is the author of all. And his presence comes out so strongly when we look for it here. So today, instead of uh, focusing in on what is happening in the passage, I want you to look and see and appreciate who is behind it, without whom we would not have this book or be sitting here. When we take a deeper look at who is behind something, it helps us to see the bigger picture. In this case, it reminds us of the God who is at work and how he operates. Scripture always gives us good insight into the mind of God. He does not change. There is so much for us to know of him, and it feeds our soul to remember who he is. In Advent, we also focused in on John the Baptist and talked about how John helped usher Jesus by preparing people for him. So today, we focus in on the one who is orchestrating the events. So we want to talk about four ideas about God found in the first eight verses. First, we see how God wants to communicate with people. Mark begins his gospel telling his audience that this book is about the good news of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. His first step in the account is to offer a quote that he attributes to Isaiah. It is one where God is talking firsthand, and then it goes in to John's voice. Now, this is an interesting quote because it actually isn't just from Isaiah. It's also from Exodus and Malachi. So Mark mashes up the quotes from three sources, from the law and the prophets to herald in Jesus. I want you to pay attention to how God communicates with people using the past and the present and the future. All of those are spelled out here. John was prophesied in the Hebrew scriptures. He is speaking to people in present time, telling them what God is going to do soon. Because God is outside of time and is in control and command of all that happens. He sees the panorama of all of history that he has made and continues to have his hand on the world until he comes again. Sometimes he wants us to look back on the promises that have come true. He wants to listen to what it is that he is saying today so that we can be ready for his work in the future. That is what Mark is inviting his readers to do as he begins. So that means that we have to pay attention and be listening for what it is that the Lord is wanting to tell us. God is doing a grand new thing, Mark tells us. His desire is for people to watch so they won't be surprised When things happen in the future, what the Lord says he will do. We can't ever say that God isn't speaking to us or isn't trying to tell us what he is doing. We need to listen. So as you think about it this morning, how well are you listening? God is speaking all the time to us in many varied ways. We see here he speaks through prophecy through the spirit, through people sent, through the voice of a writer. So what are we doing specifically to hear him? What are the sources that we use for his voice? God wants us to know that he is abiding with us. We've been hearing that, singing that all morning long. It's a comfort to know his voice and brings calm and peace to us. 
God communicates. So let us have ears to hear. Secondly, we see that God is a God of intention and preparation. Like any good writer, God sets the scene so people will know what is happening. Here they are in the desert. The wilderness for Israel is a place of new beginnings, as we see after they left Egypt. We remember that time for them, and we know that the desert is a symbol. It's a place of dependence. It can be a refuge. It can be a place of trial and rebellion. It can be a place of pain where the Lord takes people so that he can birth new life. Now, God could have announced Jesus' arrival anywhere. He could have done it in the city. It would have made sense to do it in the temple. But out in the desert, it's quiet. There's no hierarchy. There's no din of social distraction and all the things happening. It's a place of quiet, rugged beauty where people can experience God's presence. God's intention was to pave the way for Jesus to come. Mark understands and wants us to understand this is John's job. Jesus could have simply just showed up out of nowhere and started his ministry. But think about how important this time was for the people. Think about how intentional God is. That he cared about the people who were going to be having this massive thing happen. Think about how God cares for you and for me and prepares us for what is going to happen next. Think about a time when God was readying you for something, a situation that was going to be coming up in your life that you didn't know was going to happen of course, you had to see it later. You didn't know. You might have been confused. You might have thought, man, what is happening right now? What is the Lord doing? But God was getting you ready for what was coming next. God gets us ready all of the time. Of course, like you, God has readied me in many ways. Through the voice of a friend, through the prayer of a pastor, through teachers, in silence, in deep pain, while serving, simply by following him. He comes to us and he guides us so that we would know what is next, helping us to be people of discernment. Because on the other side of it, we look back and we go, oh, now I get it. Now I see how faithful the Lord is to help me. God always pays attention to the details. Look what happens here. John is making the path straight for Jesus to come. We know that this is a metaphor. The path is a metaphor for people's hearts. So John is trying to come and to help people's twisted, hilly, impossible to pass through hearts. This is a grace that God gives. So when Jesus comes to teach about who God is... When he begins doing his miraculous work, a vast number of people are receptive. They're ready because they have gone down to the river. This advanced work that John is doing is crucial. We think that it's John the Baptist who's getting everything ready for Jesus, but it's not. It is God the Father who is making sure that his son has full access to those he is coming to save I like to think of God as a completist. He diligently assures all that is set in place at just the right time. 
Thirdly, we see that God is a God who sets people apart for his plans. I am unsure that God could have cast this part better than John the Baptist. As a son of godly parents, John was raised specifically for this role. We don't know if he chooses to live in simplicity because this is how he wants to live, or if he lives this way because God has called him to be that. One thing that I think is good about it is that John doesn't conform to the religious institution of the day, nor does he care about what people think about him. His garb and his diet are in the mold of Elijah, as we know from scripture. He lives in a way that God can use him to be a messenger and proclaim Jesus. I read a great illustration this week from an old commentary about John. Remember telephone operators? Did you know this has nothing to do with anything, so don't read anything into this. But did you know, I just had to tell you this. Did you know that the very first people to do this were 12-year-old boys? And the people who were in charge soon discovered what a bad idea this was. (laughs) So in 1878, they hired the first woman operator because they figured that a grown woman was more courteous and soothing and professional and would stay at her place of, uh, yeah, work. So anyway, uh, when the operator was trying to put through the call, she would say, I'm trying to connect you. Please hold. I'm trying to connect you. That was her job. She made sure that the two parties were connected, and then she would move on to the next person. That's just what John the Baptist is doing. It was his job to make sure that there was a link between the people he met and the living God. And when that happened, and they repented, and they understood in a new way who God was, then he stepped back, knowing that he was not the point of what was happening Have you ever stopped to truly consider the humility of John the Baptist? What kind of person has a ministry of their own and then says, yeah, yeah, this isn't really as great (laughs) as what is coming next. Because the one who's coming next is so great that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. It's a rare person who is able to give God glory consistently and elevate him above all else. Even when we do great things for God, do we stop and say, you know what? Mm, It's not really about us. I'm glad. I'm glad I was obedient. I'm glad that um, I made you see God. But really, let's just stop and give God praise. See, John had very little ego and he had very little patience for those who lived full of themselves. God set John apart, and John embraced the life that God asked and empowered him to live. So I want you to stop and think about what ways God has set you apart for his work and his glory. All of us are used by the Lord in various ways at our work, at our home, with our family. It doesn't matter where we are. He sets us apart in various ways in various times. And he wants to be in all of the places in the world that need his presence. So where does God have you right now? And how are you doing in that assignment? In what ways does he want you to proclaim him? 
And how are you doing giving him credit? May we all live in ways that show our commitment and love for God. Lastly, he is a God who cares about the heart. Mark makes a radical statement. He says, people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized in the river confessing their sins. It sounds like everyone was there. But here's what I want to focus in on. People are drawn to the wilderness. It's a long way for the people in Jerusalem. Both from the city and from the country, they're coming. Because there's something in the message that has meaning for their lives. There's something out there that they are drawn to, that they want to know more about, that they believe God is doing. John's proclamation resonates with their heart. So they aren't just coming, but now they are choosing to be changed. They're choosing to go there and have the Lord change them so that when they go back to the country or the city where they came from, They're not the same people. One of our favorite books in the fall is called Too Many Pumpkins. It's a book about an older lady who lives outside of town. And because of circumstances beyond her control, her entire front yard is full of pumpkins. She doesn't know what to do with them. So she makes breads and pies and cakes and everything she can think of with pumpkin. But she still has too many left, and she has no way to get the goodies to the town for all the people there. So she does something very clever. She makes jack-o'-lanterns out of the pumpkins and puts candles in them in her front yard. And when it gets dark, all of her neighbors in town see the light, and they come out in their cars to see what is happening, what life is going on that they don't want to miss. This is the picture I have in my head when I read this. So many people coming out because there is new life happening. There's a spark of God. There is a light that is going on that people want to make sure that they get to see, that they get to be warmed by, that they get to be changed by. We are made to know God. And John is telling people, there is a way to deal with your sin. We need community. We need truth. We need to know there's hope for the things that overwhelm us. So God reaches out to the hearts of people by showing us his heart, by giving us the good news that his son is going to be coming soon. Here there is a call to repentance, an action for people to separate from their sin. That is literally what forgiveness means, that we separate out from the sin that entangles our heart. This is the good news of Jesus, a change of heart and mind that leads to a change. It's turning toward the God who offers forgiveness. One wise writer I read this week said, notice that the people don't baptize themselves. To do so would have been a symbol of self-cleansing and self-forgiveness. John offered them baptism to symbolize God's care for them so their hearts could be clear. When Jesus comes now, many hearts will be ready because of this time at the river. So a good writer wants to get their story out to people. So does the Lord. He wants everyone to know who he is and what he has done. He wants to offer transformative moments of meeting him and living for him that brings others to the truth. 
We aren't just here to enjoy the show. We aren't just here to be entertained or get great benefits of knowing the main player in an eternal drama. And we're certainly not here just to get a free pass to heaven. We're here to know the creator so that he can give us new life and we can serve him. So I was thinking, yeah, this isn't really an eat your popcorn and sit back in your seats kind of production. It's a pay attention, take notes so you can go out and spread the good news of Jesus. Studying the book of Mark, I think, is going to be a good call to action for us as a church and to use the word to impact our neighbors in Santa Barbara. We have a chance to do something new with God, with our lives. So this year, may we focus in on the creator who wants to invite others to be part of his story. Let's pray.